Hello and welcome to another episode of the Perception Podcast with me, your host, Caroline Partridge. In this episode, prepare to have your minds blown by the brilliant and entertaining Professor Dan Richardson as we explore the Mona Lisa's enigmatic smile, explain the black or gold dress internet conundrum and reveal how beauty really is in the brain of the beholder. Please join me as we look at life through a different lens. Hello, Dan. Hi. Hello. How are you? Hello. Fine, thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I'll just tell um, the listeners a little bit about you. So Daniel uh, C. Richardson is a professor of experimental psychology at University College London. Prior to that, he was an undergraduate at Magdalen College, Oxford, a graduate student at Cornell, a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford and an assistant professor at UC Santa Cruz. His research examines how individuals' thought processes are related to the people around them. He has authored many scientific articles in cognitive, developmental and social psychology and two popular science books, Man vs. Mind and A Dummy's Guide to Social Psychology. Daniel has appeared in science documentaries, TV shows such as Duck Quacks Don't Echo and been featured on the Naked Scientist podcast. He consults with a group of scientists at ACN Labs to use the tools of neuroscience to answer real-world questions outside of the lab. He has investigated such as how the brain responds to audiobooks, what is special about the experience of live theatre, very close to my heart, and whether fast sports cars really do compensate for a lack of manhood. He received three Provost's Teaching Awards from UCL and has performed shows at the London Science Museum and Bloomsbury Theatre, combining science, music and live experiments on the group mind of the audience. Wowza! Dan, fantastic. It's so great to have you here. And thank you so much for coming on to the show. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that's no, fantastic. Um, so before we start diving into what perception is in terms of how we absorb the world around us, how we see the world around us. I'd first of all like to ask you, what drew you to this field of study in the first place? And what was the main interest? Or were there, were there several things that drew you to this field of study? Um, I, I sort of stumbled into it at random, really. Most of my career is wandering around, being curious about something over there and then over there and sort of wandering wandering around, uh, looking at shiny things. Um, it sort of started because I tried to do philosophy as an undergraduate at Magdalen, uh, but it turns out philosophy is really difficult and really smart people have been doing it for thousands of years. Mm. So it's very hard to make any advancement. And it's very frustrating because it ends up being lots of talking and circularity. So I, through random chance, got to go and do grad school in America and sort of rediscovered psychology. And I was just sort of blown away by the idea that you could basically make little games, little experiments, show people information, show them flashing blobs, make them play something, and then actually learn something about how the brain is built or, or actually establish facts that we could only ever talk about in philosophy. You can really discover stuff through this method of experimentation right so it was a thirst for a thirst for for creating something new a thirst for 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 disseminating knowledge 
Yeah, that's right. And it really came home when I started to work in developmental psychology, because there are huge arguments about what a baby knows and whether that knowledge is innate that have gone on since the 17th century. And they're incredibly dull. Or you can play with a little baby, play hide and seek with it and make Mm. it surprised and giggle. And that actually establishes more information and you can learn more about the actual infant brain through playing with it than all this armchair philosophy. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm so, I have to say, I am so interested in the, in, in the subject of perception. And I'm so happy that you are here to, to tell us a little bit about how we see the world, how we, how we think we see the world and how we actually see the world around us, how we actually, what what goes on physiologically? What goes on psychologically? Um, and because because I think people have a very misguided view. We 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 think of what what we see through our eyes is exactly what is interpreted in our brains, but vision very much is an act of interpretation, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, and not in sort of a hand wavy. We make up what we see, but in a very literal. That's how your brain is wired sense and that's what we can sort of explore today if you'd like yes please can you yes please (laughs) please tell me more tell me more um so yeah where to begin i think uh how we work in science often is putting forward an idea and then finding out lots of ways why it's wrong and that's how Mm. we sort of move forward so the idea i think that most of us have that you sort of articulated there at the start is yeah the eye is kind of like a camera And what is the goal of perception? Most people think uh, that what perception is doing is making a little picture inside of your head of what's outside of your head. Mm -hmm. So if I look at my coffee cup, what perception is doing is getting a little picture of that somehow represented in my brain. And that's a reasonable view of what the job of perception is. The eyes like a camera and the brain stores and processes all that information like a computer. That's completely reasonable, but it's actually completely wrong. You still see it in Psych 1 textbooks. Your eye is like a camera. But when you look at it, the whole idea falls apart. Mm. And one way to sort of, <laughs> this is slightly gory. Don't tell me if this is <laughs> No, not, please. You need to put a, a waiting. But uh, So imagine there's an alien who, yeah. who is hovering over your house and pulls you up with a tractor beam. And they want to understand what perception is and how your eye works. Yeah. Well, they might find in your pocket an iPhone camera. And they say, oh, here's a camera. I wonder if the eyeball looks at the same way. And if you crack open an iPhone camera, you can see it's got a a hole in the middle, an aperture. It's got an array of sensors. It's doing this sort of camera-like job that is quite familiar to us. But then imagine we can sort of pull your eyeball out, pull it out, and there's the optic nerve dangling, and see if we can do the same thing with that and look at how your eye is built. Mm. So in your iPhone, there's an array of photoreceptors, and those are things that change light into electricity. And they're in a grid. There's, I don't know how many, six million of them in your iPhone camera. And there's millions in your eyeball as well. And they do exactly the same job. They just do it in a biological way, not a um, a mechanical way, electrical way. Um, And if you look at them, they they seem to be similar. But when you look a bit closer, you see this huge difference. Mm -hmm. So in the iPhone, all those photoreceptors are arranged in a nice grid. And they're very even, a bit like this grid behind me here, packed in tight, and they're all nicely arranged. But if you look at the eyeball, they're really unevenly distributed. Yeah. All those photoreceptors are actually crammed into one tiny spot in the middle. And in fact, there's so many crammed there that the surface of the eye buckles a little bit because there's so many photoreceptors there. 
And in that one tiny spot, there's as many photoreceptors as the rest of the eyeball put together. So there's this huge, weird (laughs) disparity. And so that little spot on the back of your eye, if I'm holding your eyeball here, if I'm the alien, that little spot on the back of your eye corresponds to a bit in the world. And that little spot where you can see a lot, it's called the fovea. And it's sort of at the center of your gaze. And that high resolution spot is about the same. If you put your hand out and look at your thumbnail, it's about the size of your thumbnail. Right. So if you outstretch your hand and look at your thumbnail, you're getting about as much information from that thumbnail as the rest of the your visual world put together. Wow, that's insane. <laughs> and if you if you know took a picture of your iPhone and there's one tiny spot where you can see stuff and the rest is really blurry, you would take the phone and get well, yeah, you take the phone back. Thing, right? Yeah, that's useless. But that's how our eye is built. But we don't. And this is where we start to lie to ourselves we start to fill in we the brain starts to bluff a little bit Mm. because basically the brain is saying no i know i can see everything around me i can only really see something this big but the thing is if i want to know what books are behind you i can move my little spotlight there and i can move my little spotlight there so we don't feel like we can only see this much because we're constantly moving around three or four times a second we have these eye movements saccades they're called we jump around all the time and we have the illusion that we can see everything in detail even though it's only really this big. Wow, that's amazing. So it's interesting then. So really beauty is in the eye and the brain of the beholder. Yeah, and we are, sorry, you just mentioned beauty and then I started thinking of the Mona Lisa, which is kind of cool. So, <laughs> yeah, no, please, please. Let me just randomly tell you that yeah. story since she's uh, the most beautiful woman, apparently. And the thing about the Mona Lisa is she's famously ambiguous smile. She's smiling mm. at me, she's frowning, and Leonardo managed to sort of capture that in-between expression. That's where I thought it was so lifelike. But he might, or might not, have been just exploiting how the eye is built, Right. Wow. So let me try and lay this out a little bit. So you've got this tiny high resolution thing here. Yeah. And then in the corner, you see just big blurs, yeah. right? Now, if you look, if I look at you in the eyes, or if you look at the Mona Lisa in the eyes, yeah. you can see her eyes in great detail, but her mouth is kind of blurry. Yes, yes. Now, if yeah. you And if you blur the Mona Lisa's face, it looks like she's smiling because you get these shadows here and it looks like a very sort of blocky drawing. It looks like she's got a big grin. Yeah, yeah. So because you can't see in great detail with your peripheral vision, when you look Mona Lisa in the eyes, it looks like her mouth is smiling. You think, oh, this lass is smiling at me. You look down at her mouth. Now you've got your high resolution light on her mouth. And when you look at her mouth at high resolution, what you see is this thin line that's very flat. And those big, blocky, blurry shadows that made her look smile disappear. So literally, while your eyes go between her eyes and her mouth, your eye is telling you, oh, she's smiling. Oh, she's frowning because of the limitations of the eye. So it's literally (laughs) changing expression, or she's not changing expression, but you're getting information into your brain that gives you the sense that her opinion of changing is changing as you look over her face. And isn't that incredible that it makes you really appreciate the the masterful skill of the artist to be able to do that? It's, yeah, and we don't know if it was sort of an intuition or did he plan this. It looked like he painted the Mona Lisa in layers and the bottom layer yeah. had that big blurry smile and then he sort of refined it to a thinner one. Was that deliberate? We, you know, we have no idea, but it it certainly seems to work. It's absolutely incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So, so tell us more a little bit about the 
So when the information reaches the fovea and what then, how does the brain uh, interpret that? What is the brain doing? I know you said that we're filling in. There's expectation, isn't there? There's, oh, well, I see a car. So I'm looking at the person that's, or the person sitting in a car and I, and I know what a car looks like. So I kind of fill in what's the, the rest of the car, but what, but what is actually going on with our brain and how do those, and, and what part of the brain is, is associated with um, interpreting those images or adding to those images? Yeah, that's a great question. So, let me give you a very brief tour of the wiring in your brain. So you've got your eyeball. Again, imagine we're the alien and we've got you on the on the slab trying to mm. figure out the wiring of your eye and brain. What you find is there's the eyeball and there's the optic nerve that comes off the back. And these things mm. are called ganglion, ganglion cells taking those yeah. electrical impulses. But already you've got a weird thing going on, that there's something like 100 million photoreceptors, uh, but only about 1 to 10 million ganglion cells. So there's a lot fewer cables coming off the back of the eye than there are sensors. Mm. So already you're only taking about 1% of the information from your eyeball and sending it to your brain. So that's like having a really good lens on the front of a camera that's got, you know, a one megabyte memory. It can only ever store a lot less than the information it can actually take in. And so, so how many units of information do we take in? Sorry to interrupt you, but how many units of information no, no. are we taking in every second or whatever you know is is it is it like millions of units of information and 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 what do we reduce that down to that's a great question and it's really hard to count because it <laughs> okay. don't uh which is a such a scientific question right because we love counting stuff and that's all we care about is how we count yeah. stuff um so yeah it depends how you quantify it mm. and We'll come back to that question later, because what actually happens to that information when it goes in the brain, that's a whole other thing okay. uh, that we can get back to. But whatever the amount of information that hits your eyeball is, it's reduced by a factor of almost 100 going into your brain. So it's in fact, we calculated, yeah, yeah, whatever it is, however you count it. Um, if you could transmit all the information your eye picks up to your brain and process it, you'd immediately pass out because the biological effort to run the neurons to process all that information uh you would collapse uh you would not have enough energy you would like break your your the computer of your brain wow. so it has to be reduced because our brains are only this big and we need energy for lots of stuff so you do this reduction in information so already you're throwing away stuff and it gets sent how should I do this? You've got your eyes here. You've got the optic nerves. This sort of cross in the middle, an area called the lateral geniculate nucleus. And that is at the top of your skull. No, no, that's sorry. It's half to, to point in 2D. It's sort of kind of right in the middle. It sort of crosses okay. right in the middle um, there. And uh, just a side note, brain names are really intimidating. I found I hated doing mm. brain anatomy because, you know, you feel like you have to memorize them all. But they're all really stupid. So yeah. lateral geniculate nucleus means the thing on the side, lateral, that's yeah. a blob nucleus that looks like a knee. Nice. And that's it. But because it's Latin, it sounds really intelligent. It's a great way to remember it. Yeah. So the knee, the knee shaped blobby bit. The knee blob. The knee blob in the. Most of the brain areas is like the blobby bit there, but in Latin. Anyway, so the optics nerves cross and they project to the back of your head. 
So that yeah. lump on the back of your head that sticks out a little bit, that's the occipital lobe. And that's yeah. where you start to process the visual information. And it sticks out, so we're always bashing it. And that's why we're all seeing stars, because you're disrupting that early visual thing. That's why you see those dots and stars, because that's where you're processing points and lines and early things. That is fantastic. So I wondered, you know, that whole thing about when you hit your head and you see stars or that's amazing. So that is where the visual information is processed. So no wonder if it gets knocked, you're yeah, going yeah. to. And it's yeah. sort of harder to hit stuff here and we're much better padded here. Uh, so yeah, it ends up that's mostly what you see when you bash yourself. Okay. Um, and then so it's really useful being bold because I can show you. Uh, so early vision is here right at the back of the brain. And then it sort of flows to higher levels of cognition. So uh, the information flows up up here to my sort of motor area. So that's the visual information helping me move and catch balls and throw things. Or it flows here, which is sort of my language area. So I might figure out that's a cat in front of me. I might name it and so on. Mm. But you've got this sort of flow of information from the back, from the back where we do lower vision to these sort of areas where you're doing higher cognitions, making decisions about stuff. So, and they're the, well, because uh, the, the listeners can't see, they're the upper parts of the brain. Yeah, yeah, where you're doing, bringing in memory, bringing in experiences, doing that sort of active interpretation. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? It's, we are actively every day interpreting vision as i said vision is an act of interpretation it's not a photographic exercise it's and and how we see the world is really influenced by our emotions by our physiology by our by our personal history absolutely yeah yeah and so there's lots of ways if we go back to this you know iphone or your eyeball there's lots of ways the iphone way outperforms your eyeballs for exactly the reasons you're talking about. So I'm sure, you know, your listeners will see lots of visual illusions where it looks like a wiggly line. And in fact, it's straight because mm -hmm. your eye is easily tricked or two things that look like a different color are actually the same color. Uh, that's not a mistake your iPhone would make, but it's a mistake your eye makes all the time. And yes. it's because it's interpreting those lines, interpreting those colors in the light of all its other experience whereas your iphone is not it's just recording what it sees but your eye is interpreting not recording at every moment it's an interesting concept isn't it because there are there have been lots of experiments like the one with the gorilla <laughs> the good people are there are two there are two groups of uh students aren't there that are by a lift they're by a the ground floor of a lift and they are playing basketball and the 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 I onlooker. think that was the lift in my grad school. I think that's in Cornell offices. That's uh, but anyway, sorry, it was done by people when they were at Cornell. Oh, that's a that. Well, there you go. Um, and the onlooker is asked to focus or count how many times the ball times the ball is passed, and somebody dressed as a gorilla walks through uh, the group. I think they walked through a couple of times. I'm not sure. And the onlookers, main, it's something, isn't it, like 90% of people don't even see the gorilla? Yeah. Yeah, that's where I was saying it's a great question to say how much information goes into the brain. But then when you look at what do we do with that information, do we store it? Do we put it in our brain's memory card like the iPhone has? Mostly we don't bother. We feel like 
we're recording all of the information around us. But when you do careful experiments like the gorilla thing, people just don't seem to store or react to the information around them. So what they did before that gorilla experiment, these things on what's called change blindness. And it's a right. bizarre phenomena that really surprised vision scientists just how strong this works. And the first demonstrations were done, uh, again, this was on Cornell campus, just outside my office. They filmed the first ones. And what happens is there's a guy who's going up to a linguistics professor. For some reason, the psychologists at Cornell would always pick on the linguistics people. It was kind of a mean <laughs> thing. So he goes up to the linguistics professor and says, uh, it's the first day of classes. Can you tell me where the library is? It sounds like, oh, I'm sorry, sorry to stop you, but it sounds like you're just about to start a joke. <laughs> so there's, oh, a guy, well, this... there's a guy who walks up to a linguistics professor if you look at this stuff yeah. online, this got taken up by all those like candid camera Beatles about sort of shows. Oh, right. it's just okay, ridiculous yeah. when, when you do it. Um, so he's talking to uh, the guy giving him directions and they're saying, you know, go up there, turn around. And then sort of rudely, these people walk by with a big uh, wooden door and just sort yeah. of barge between the two people. But crouched behind the door is another grad student. And as the door goes between them, the first grad student ducks down and the other one pops up. So the guy who's giving directions... Yeah, turn left. He's now suddenly talking to a completely different person. Yeah, yeah. And he just keeps talking. Yeah. There's no, hang on, where was that guy? There's no, they're going crazy. There's no reaction whatsoever. He just keeps going. And that, sorry, you, you were just about to say something, but that is also something that just made me think about magicians and misdirection and how they Absolutely. use misdirection. But sorry, you, please carry on. Please continue. So... Uh, all of this stuff, yeah, magicians, they're applied psychologists, basically. Mm. And in fact, my friend Gustav Kuhn, who you might want to talk to, does yes. the visual science of illusion. He's a member of the magic circle, and he does all these incredible illusions. And then, you know, he's doing a trick over here. And I tracks people while they're doing them and tries to understand exactly what happens. Yeah, but most of magic is exploiting all of this stuff um, that I'm explaining in a really artful way. Um so yeah, all this change blindness stuff suggests that we're really not encoding the world around us at all. And with a little bit of tricky, like being interrupted by a door, uh, suddenly people, they don't react to this information. They don't store and respond to it. So this information is going into their brain. So the information is going in, but then it's just washing out again. You're not mm -hmm. holding on to it. And it's a really surprising uh, set of demonstrations. You can even show someone a picture, disappears 30 milliseconds, another one comes back up. So it's flick, 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 flick. And there's a huge thing missing. There's like a big chair missing in the middle of the picture, but people can't see it because even over that brief 30 milliseconds, their brains are just not storing that information. Again, this is really easy for my phone to do. I could say, what's the difference between these two images? Would immediately identify it. I could literally write the code to do that from an image. Mm. Uh, but my brain just doesn't work like that. It's not storing and comparing images at all. And, and I suppose our attention on what, is important is really affected by our personal history, as I was saying, by our by our uh, by our main focus in our life, things that have affected us. You know, you will you will uh, I suppose you will recognise or you'll look to somebody who looks like someone else. You know, you will yeah yeah you will all of these um, experiences seem to be shaping that active interpretation like you yeah. said. So um, perhaps you and, and many people will be aware of the, um, the, the, the dress illusion, this picture of a, of a dress that was in a shop window and half the internet thought it was 
gold, half thought it was blue. Blue, yeah. It's about, about three. No, see, you're certain it's blue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no. Three, <laughs> well, four no. years ago or something. Yeah, yeah. And of course, this is provision scientists. This is, oh my God, that's my thing. And the whole world's discussing it. We all got very, very excited. Yeah. Um, and we think we now understand what's happening there. So um, when you see a color, again, you're not, you know, that tool on Photoshop where I can go blip, what color is that pixel? And it tells me exactly what it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of called a dropper thing, or you can get a light meter and you say, what, what is exactly the color of that pixel or this part of the world? That's not how our brains work whatsoever. We're not very good at doing absolute color. What we look at is coloring context, and we sort of ignore the background light. So if you got a light meter and saw, you know, what color is my shirt right now? It's sort of greenish. Greeny, yeah. Yeah, but if I walked outside into the bright sunlight, the actual wavelength of the light would change hugely. Or just if a shadow passes over me, the wavelength of light changes hugely. But every time a shadow goes by me, I don't think, oh, my God, my clothes are changing color, right? Because my brain is ignoring all of that lighting difference because behaviorally it's irrelevant. Mm. And that's what we think is happening with that dress thing. So the weird thing about that particular photograph is the dress is that it's lit in two different ways. It's got two sources of this ambient background light that we're good at ignoring. There's a light inside the shop that's illuminating it. And there's light from outside as well, uh, from, from the outside, from the sun, that's illuminating it. And why we think people disagree so much is when you look at that picture of the dress, half of us, roughly, use the background, the ambient light from the inside yellowy light, mm -hmm. and the other half choose the colder outside light. And oh in that context, it looks a different color. Oh my God, explained. Yeah. Oh, but here's the killer thing. Why would you choose an inside light or an outside light, right? What would make that determination? What's the experience that you have that makes you choose exactly. that? Which is your, your exactly. Question. And the one thing that seems to predict, will you see blue or will you see yellow, is whether or not you personally are a mornings or an evenings person. Whoa! And if you're a mornings person, you see more of the daylight. If you're an evenings person, you see more of the artificial light. Oh, my my mind is blown. <laughs> Dan, Dan, that's incredible. So that's just something really simple, like what is this, the color of this dress? And already your experience of staying up late or your experience of seeing the dawn seems to be pushing your interpretation of these things. Wow. And your interpretation of those things and why you and why you are a morning person or why you are an evening person. Again, there's another level that will that will determine another level of of uh, your emotional life that will determine whether you like mornings or evenings or or the light during autumn. When I when I there's certain days when I walk out into um, and I know we're we're in autumn now autumn winter but you look out and there's a certain light that really reminds me of a particular time in the past and. My my memory, and we could go on to memory again in our next mm -hmm. uh, next exciting episode, but um, but my, it triggers my memory, and that's another level of just of how complicated we are as human beings, and how complicated our our brains are, and how amazing our brains are, because our brains Absolutely. can't help helping us out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's what's really strange is that it's not just 
um, sort of a long-term thing. Like I'm used to seeing yellowy light because I stay up late more. Mm. You can really show it sort of over the course of seconds. So if you look at a face that's frowning, face that's frowning, face that's frowning, face that's frowning, you do this thing called adaptation. Basically, your brain gets used to seeing something repeatedly and then sort of tunes it out because we tend to look at stuff that's different. So if you see a frowny face, frowny face, frowny face, then a smiley face, that smiley face will look much more smiley to you because you're sort of, you've adapted to seeing frowns around you. And we get this adaptation with color, with light, with all sorts of things. We're taking your glasses off, right? Certainly it looks blurry, but after a while I adapt to that level of blurriness. So we're constantly tuning, not just to our lifetime experiences, but right now, what am I seeing? And you're adapting and narrowing down to that. That is, it's incredible. <laughs> it's just. If you want to know that the saddest experiment I've ever <laughs> with was in my wife's lab in Stanford. She was a Stanford prof in a developmental lab. And she was looking at showing babies' faces. And you sort of eye track mm. them, look at their responses. And she was looking at uh, mothers who had a gene that probably predisposed them to depression and seeing if mm. they passed that gene on to the babies. And what she found is that the babies with probably depressed mothers responded really different to smiley faces. They really orientated them to that was a more novel stimulus to them <gasps> because they were used to their parents having sad effect didn't oh, i tell you that was the saddest experiment that is oh my goodness that's so that's that's really sad but incredibly just it's 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 simple isn't it though it's kind of it's with that simple it's a simple experiment but to get to that uh mm. Experiment in the first place isn't simple, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but to yeah. get to 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 look at that, and then how would that be used? How would that it, that so that's just looking at how we respond to emotion. Yeah, I mean, how it, we it, learn it, emotion. Yeah, there's lots of really interesting angles there. I mean, one is just that babies are incredible absorbers of patterns around them. So even subtle differences in what's the general mood of, of your caregivers, they're already learning that information and responding to it. Um, well, so there's a whole really interesting pattern about how much information babies are taking in from the world around them. And it's just insane. Sorry, my passion, even though what I'm doing was developmental psychology because it's just crazy stuff, right? And they found... Just to give you an example of the amount of information a baby is absorbing, um, they found in one study, uh, you can take a newborn, like just weeks old, mm. and play information from a speaker here, a speaker here. And uh, babies can do very little when they're born. They can barely control their muscles, but they can sort of struggle and move a little bit, right? Mm. They can't mm. pick stuff up. They can just about move their eyes, but they can orientate their head a bit so they can breastfeed and stuff. And what they found, uh, this is a study in England, is that babies even that young would orientate towards the sound of Australian soap opera theme songs. <laughs> if you played Neighbours, they would move their head towards it. Why? Because what can you do when you're nine months pregnant? Pretty much nothing but sit on the couch and watch soap operas. Oh. So even in the womb, they had learned the theme song to Neighbours or Home and Away. That is incredible. That because I have heard that you know that that obviously the babies can they can hear what's going on in the through their fluid. Echoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They sounds like be able to hear what, what you hear at the bottom of a swimming pool. That sort yeah, of garbled yeah. sort of that sound. Garbled sound, but to orientate towards soap operas is hilarious. Oh my goodness! And they that's... were 
and that was sort of an anecdotal thing. But then they've they've experimented on this and done um, different Doctor Zeus poems, and they can pick out the rhythm of one Doctor Zeus poem or the other. The the experiment paper is called "The Cat in the Hat and the Amniotic Sac," which is quite cute. <laughs> well, there you go. That's and again, this is so fascinating, and it and it makes me think of the whole. Well, it, it makes me understand. Well, it makes me think that we are when we are born, we're blank. We're really, we're really open, aren't we? We're just so receptive in a fetus state, so receptive, and not just from when we're born, is it? Really, it's till we were about seven years old, six or seven years old. We're so receptive to what is going on around us, and how we absorb that, and how we navigate that. I mean, babies are just absorption machines, really, aren't they? Absorbing information. And as we grow, um, I suppose as we get to those, when people talk about milestones, oh, they're crawling, they're talking, they're, you know. But also how we then, those other subtle layers of how we perceive the world and how we perceive others who are, others in relation to us and how we modify our behavior of those people in relation to us, which again is just fascinating, which is something that I would like to talk to you more about. Um, uh, you should talk to my wife, really. She's the yeah. expert. <laughs> right. Okay. I'll be talking to your wife more about um, because. But yeah, it's really fun. I mean, if you look at a newborn baby, that fovea that I was telling you about earlier, yeah. that's not really even grown in a newborn. It does, it's does. it got a big blurry hole right in the middle of its vision because it hasn't finished growing that high-density bit of its eyes. It can't really focus its eyes as well. It can, can't really see very well in color. Newborns are completely useless. They're one of the most new, useless newborn creatures mm. on the animal planet. You know, horses can walk within 30 seconds. You know, every other creature is much more adept at stuff. Do you, do you think that that is because our brains are are absorbing and our brains are unfinished aren't they they're not they're not something that is oh again i think this is a misconception of a lot of people that the brain we're born and a brain is is uh completely uh set out with all the information that we need and how to do things and then just as we grow that grows but it's an ever changing it's an ever-changing thing, isn't it? It's it's absolutely. It's us, the the brain, uh, evolving, and parts of the brain taking on information. I mean, I was reading um, fascinating book by um, David Eagleman called Live Wired, and he talks about uh, a a young boy who suffered incredibly awful epileptic fit, debilitating, completely debilitating epileptic fits. And his parents opted because he had no life, really. They were, they were so frequent and so intense that they opted for him to have half of his brain removed. And half the brain was removed. And um, obviously, after the operation, they, were, they, they weren't sure what was going to happen. And... Um, he learnt how to speak again and walk again and and talk and uh, everything. All of these other processes that were taken out, that that one side of the brain was uh, in charge of were taken over by the other side of the brain. And now, apart from having a, a slight limp 
and um, weakness in his right hand or his left hand, I can't remember. I think it's the right hand. Um, you wouldn't know that he actually physically just has half a brain. It's, it's, it's yeah. that to me is mind blowing. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's this, in- yeah. So there's a really interesting thing in like the history of psychology where we think the brain is most like the most complicated technology we have at the time. Mm. So people used to say the brain is like a pipe organ or the brain is like a telephone exchange or the brain is like a computer now. Mm. Uh, and really, you just mean the brain is really, really complicated and this is the most complicated object. Uh, but it's completely different, right? If I smashed half my computer, my computer is not going to be okay and learn how to do the rest of the stuff. Yeah. I take it one tiny bit, it's over. And mm. the brain is radically not like that whatsoever. As that great example you uh, you said. Yeah. So it's the plasticity of the brain, isn't it? Neuroplasticity of yeah, the brain, yeah. of how we learn and how we make new connections. And again, that I think is something for uh, another episode. Um, Just to go back to the baby thing, because I think there's a link that you might like, uh, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I was saying, if you look at the newborns, right, they've got this fovea missing in, in their things. They can't redo color. They can't do focal lengths. They can do very, very little. Yeah. And in fact, there's pretty much one thing that they can see, given there's a hole in their vision, they can't focus very well. And that's they can see really well at about this distance out of the corner of their eye. Mm. What's so, about sorry. that distance out of the corner of your eye? If you're so, breastfeeding, that's your mother's face. Ah, uh, so yeah, it's because the you're distance. looking here. It's that. It's sort of that distance there. So it's the distance from uh, the nipple to the nose. Pretty much, yeah. And yeah. again, it's out of the corner of your eye, and that's uh, that's really what the newborn seems to be doing. It's substituting an immature, not properly grown brain with mm. a social link with other people. And it's other people, the parents, the caregivers, that replace that brain function in many ways. I mean, sort of physically, we bring stuff to the baby as well. But also, a baby up until four months doesn't really have the neural circuitry mm. to calm down, right? If you get mm. upset, you know, to take a deep breath, you know how to take the steps to downregulate. Mm. Babies literally don't have that brain circuit until four months. So we have to do it for them. We have to shush and rock them. So that's us, social other people, replacing missing bits of the baby's brain. Oh, <laughs> Dan, oh, my God. I could talk to you for about five hours. And I will do at another time. Um, uh, so I think what you've given us today is just as a taster of how First of all, how incredible our brains are, how incredible we are as humans in navigating our way through the world and also how we navigate our way through the world physiologically and and how we understand the world through our eyes and that the brain is the the brain is the the I suppose the interpreter. Um yeah, actually can I just finish off one yeah, story that I started sure. at the beginning? Because it sort of loops back around. Please. So we started off talking about, uh, you know, this alien autopsy, looking at the wiring of your brain, yeah. looking at the information that's coming from your eyeball back to the back of your head and then to these higher levels of cognition. Mm. And we can look at those wires, look at those neuronal links and count them. But here's the thing we discovered more recently is there's also wires that go in the opposite direction from these higher levels of cognition, from memory, from decision-making, from language areas, and they feed back down to here. 
So that's mm -hmm. your thoughts, expectations, and beliefs informing what you see. And here's the crazy thing. There's more wires going from your higher cognition to your vision than there are going from your eyeball to your vision. So in terms of the wiring of your brain, what you see is more a function of what you expect, believe, think you're going to see than it is what is literally in front of you. Yeah, that's it's it's incredible, isn't it? Because really, as I as I said before, vision really is an act of interpretation and also in the eye of the beholder. And that's what makes us so unique. Two people looking at the same thing, how we look at art, how we how we perceive beauty, how we perceive others in the world. And I think that's what's the fantastic difference that makes us so interesting as human beings, so fascinating as human beings to, to look at and understand. Dan, thank you so much for Not speaking to us today because it has been an incredible insight. See what I did there? Into <laughs> into how uh we into how we see the world. And um I'd just like to to again, well, to thank you, but also to ask if if people want to find out more about the work that you do or you, do you have I can put links to your um obviously I'll add links to your your socials in the in the show notes but it can how can people contact you and and I know you do you do well I say experiments um but run experiments is that right yeah uh so you can find me at UCL um yeah. there are many many Daniel Richardsons in the world that's the only reason okay. I use the C because we're so common Daniel um, C Richardson yes yes, yes there's <laughs> There's a Daniel W. Richardson who studies premature ejaculation. That is not me. That's another guy. I get very weird emails. I'm the C. That's where I use it. Um, so Daniel C. Richardson at UCL, and you'll you'll come across our sort of lab web pages. Or there's acnlabs.co.uk, which is this uh, group of other neuroscientists where we take all this stuff outside of the ivory tower and we try and go and answer questions in, in the real world. Um, and yeah, you can read about some of our work there uh, as well, ACN Labs. Okay, fantastic. And I will do that. And I really look forward to talking to you again because, uh, as we discussed previously, um, we discussed outside of this podcast about memory, the 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 insane uh, way that we store our memories. Um, but that, as I say, that's for another podcast, um, another episode. I would just like to thank you. It has been absolutely brilliant speaking to you. You are a fantastic uh, raconteur, speaker. It <laughs> <laughs> was amazing. Amazing. So, um, yeah, Dan, bye-bye and thank you. Thank you very much. This has been fun. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye. Oh, and thank you, to listeners. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Um, also, if you'd like to hear more from Dan, please let me know. If you'd like to hear more of these uh, uh more about the actual uh, process, the, 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 I suppose the scientific process of how we understand the world around us, please, uh, please let me know. Share, subscribe uh, and be happy. Okay. Uh, I'll be seeing you. <laughs> I'll be seeing you. Bye.